the difficulty in having three chapters of Scripture as our Bible reading was um, we didn't have time to read it all, so um, that's why we've tried to follow the main thread through those three chapters. Uh, before I um, talk further to this, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, it takes us back to the beginning uh, and helps us understand the world we live in and how it came to be, and your, indeed your purposes and intentions for us. So as we reflect further on this amazing and profound passage of Scripture, we pray that you would open our eyes and help us more clearly understand uh, the nature of reality around us uh, and how it has got to be the state it is in. And may that also inform our hearts as we think about uh, the gospel and how it is the ultimate answer to all our woes. Amen. Uh, in the 1992 film, Grand Canyon, a wealthy immigration lawyer, uh, played by Kevin Klein, is caught in a traffic jam. He decides he will try a detour and soon he gets lost in an increasingly deserted, dark, and run-down part of the city. Uh, then the worst possible thing that could happen does happen. His car breaks down. And there he is, a white man uh, stranded in a luxury sports car in a black neighborhood at night. Uh, he calls for a tow truck and then sits in his car to wait. Well, it's not long before five... Rough, tough, shadowy figures appear from the local streets. Five huge, well-built black guys surround his car and threaten him. And it seems that all is lost. And just at that moment, the tow truck driver, played by Danny Glover, arrives. He is an earnest and genial man, and he starts to hook up the sports car. At the local youths protest. He is depriving them of their lunch. And so the truck driver takes the group leader aside and gives him his view of reality. And this is what he says. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait in his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Well, I don't know if the tow truck driver was intentionally presenting a Christian worldview, but his analysis of the world agrees exactly with what the Bible says. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And it's a great summary of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. The first two chapters of Genesis show us the way things were supposed to be. A shimmering, radiant, perfect world <clears throat> with humanity living in unblemished, joyful society, both with each other and with God. However, the third chapter of Genesis shows us why things now aren't the way they were supposed to be. In Genesis chapter 3, we see how the situation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is now reversed. Uh, human beings rebel against the God who made them. Uh, God's good and perfect creation is defaced, and God's, creation, God's relationship with humanity is ruined. Genesis chapter 3 is so important. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is the key for understanding both the Bible and its view of reality. 
You see, if we were to take our scissors and cut Genesis chapter 3 out of our Bibles, we would not be able to fully understand our world today. Genesis chapter 3 is where everything goes wrong, and it launches two strands that are then interwoven throughout the remainder of the Bible. Uh, Firstly, destruction and death. There is this negative strand interwoven throughout the Bible thereafter. Uh, We see the outworking of humanity's rebellion in every sphere of life. And the depth and extent of the problem becomes ever more apparent as the Bible's narrative continues. Uh, The ruin and the wreckage from sin is strewn everywhere. Uh, Destruction and death run rampant. And in countless different ways, the very fabric of our world and society is rent asunder. But the second strand which runs throughout the Bible thereafter is positive. It's grace and gospel. We see this launch in the Bible and this growing development of God's redemption plan. The good news is this. God has not abandoned His creation. His grace, that's God's grace, is at work to restrain sin and to redeem humanity and indeed the whole of creation. So we see both destruction and death but grace and gospel interwoven thereafter throughout the Bible. So you see, the point is, as the Bible story unfolds, we see both the problem and the solution growing in ever sharper clarity. So you see, these first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 to 3, serve as a vital uh, starting point. They set the scene for the rest of the Bible. So, firstly, uh, let's look at things as they were supposed to be. This is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to pick up on three truths in particular. Uh, God is the powerful creator of all things. Uh, God's creation was very good. And God is the ruler of his creation. So, firstly, uh, God is the powerful creator of all things. Uh, When you or I make something, uh, we start with existing materials, and we fashion them into something else, don't we? But such is not the case when God creates. Uh, God makes something out of nothing. Now, at your next dinner party, uh, you can impress your guests with your proficiency in Latin if you so choose. Uh, When the opportunity presents itself, try dropping into conversation that God creates ex nihilo. That means Latin for out of nothing. Not only is it impressive that God creates something out of nothing, but he does it so effortlessly. He simply speaks. He gives the word and it comes to pass. It happens. It points, you see, to the greatness of God's power. So, firstly, God is the powerful creator of all things. Secondly, God's creation was very good. If the power of God is seen in how he creates, the goodness of God is seen in what he creates. Everything is wholesome. Every aspect of the creation is rich. It drips with beauty and precision and purpose. And the repeated refrain in those chapters, of course, is that everything that God created was very good, very good. 
God had good, wholesome purposes in his mind's eye before the creation. And after the creation, he sees with great satisfaction that what he has made perfectly fulfills that good purpose. It was very, very good. So we see that God is the powerful creator of all things. We see the creation is very good. Thirdly, we see that God is the ruler in his creation. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, the camera lens zooms in on the climax of God's creative action. And in Genesis chapter 2, we are introduced to a creature unlike any other creature. This creature stands apart from all others. This creature is given a position of privilege at the very pinnacle of creation and at the Creator's side. This creature, of course, is humanity. And the main thrust of Genesis chapter 2 is God's relationship with humanity. Uh, they walk and they talk with God. And yet, of course, it is not a relationship of equals. God is the ruler over everything that he has made. And never is that more true than with humanity. Uh, God establishes a hierarchy of order, of authority. And humanity sits under God's authority. And the rest of creation sits under humanity's authority. Uh, man has, respon his re has responsibility for the woman, although she his is equal. Uh, she is created to be his helper in the task of ruling the creation. So you see, it's helpful, therefore, to think of God as a monarch. Uh, God is a king who rules supreme over his creation. And humanity's place is to sit reverently under that rule. However, it is important to note the nature of God's rule. Uh, we see, of course, in the news every day that we live in a world where position and power are frequently abused. However, God's rule stands in stark contrast uh, God's rule is not onerous, it is generous. Uh, God showers humanity with these myriad blessings. Uh, the goodness of the creation is for them to enjoy. Uh, God permits them to eat of anything in the garden, of course, but with one exception. So that is how things were supposed to be. But in Genesis chapter 3, we now see things as they were not supposed to be. Uh, we're not told how long Adam and Eve lived in harmonious bliss. But what we do know is that there came a point where they derailed the train. Paradise was lost. How did such a state of affairs come about? Well, what we're going to do is this. Firstly, we're going to look at the contours of humanity's rebellion. Uh, what was the rebellion? What did it amount to? And then we're going to move on to consider the consequences of humanity's rebellion. So the contours of humanity's rebellion. What did it involve? And we're going to pick up on four aspects in particular. Uh, doubting God's goodness, rejecting God's word and rule, uh, wanting to be like God, and reversing God's creation order. So firstly, uh, doubting God's goodness. That is what Adam and Eve did. They doubted 
God's goodness. Everything that God's made is good, but Satan nudges Adam and Eve to believe otherwise. Satan sows the seeds of doubt in their minds. Satan recasts God as a killjoy who does not have their best interests at heart. And a bit like the case for Brexit, God's prohibition of them eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is dressed up as having many benefits and no downsides. They're not going to die, but they'll have a godlike status. They'll have independence and superior knowledge. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But tragically, they swallow the lie. But they don't yet feel the concealed hook. They doubt God's goodness. They don't believe that God has given them all that they need, and their relationship with God is already deteriorating. Uh, Secondly, in doubting God's goodness, they moved to rejecting God's word and rule. Uh, God had clearly laid down one statute of law, and with it he had prescribed the penalty. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17 says this, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Tragically, they do take from that tree. And in so doing, they reject God's authority and they disbelieve God's warning. And instead, they mount their own coup. They are lured by the lie that they can be like God's too. And they think that they are grasping for greatness, but actually they are snatching at sand. Embedded within the first sin is the DNA of every sin since. In different shapes and forms, it's the cry of every heart. Nobody is going to tell me how to live my life. I'm the one who makes the rules for my life. I'm the one who decides what's right and wrong for me. You see, it's that misguided belief that the good life involves pushing God to the margins and us occupying the driver's seat. As we continue to map the contours of humanity's rebellion, fourthly, we see them reversing God's good creation order. In their bid for control and independence, they reverse God's good creation order. Audaciously, they rearrange God's authority structure. What was the order that God had instituted? It went like this. God, man, woman, creation. But that order is now completely turned on its head. Uh, Eve listens to the serpent. Adam listens to Eve. And God is ignored. So we've seen the contours of humanity's rebellion. What were the consequences of humanity's rebellion? And the consequences were devastating. They were far-reaching. The explosion of humanity's rebellion 
shoots out shrapnel that damages every part of the good creation. As a result, the creation is cursed, relationships are ruined, and death is introduced. So firstly, creation is cursed. Previously, the creation sang under God's blessing. But now, every aspect of creation groans under His curse. And nothing but nothing escapes the collateral damage of humanity's rebellion. Uh, Firstly, the environment is cursed. The environment is now out of kilter with itself. Chapter 3, verse 17, God says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, Secondly, the animal kingdom is cursed. Whilst the serpent gets a special mention, by implication, the whole of the animal kingdom falls under God's curse. Chapter 3, verse 14. Cursed are you, says God to the serpent, to Satan, above all the livestock and all the wild animals. Uh, Thirdly, humanity is cursed. Life becomes hard. Uh, The woman's great joy in childbearing is now tempered by pain. Chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Uh, also now, satisfaction is in work is curbed by pain and frustration. Chapter 3, verse 17. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. So you see, in different ways, the whole of the creation is cursed. The perfect functionality gives way now to dysfunctionality. And as a result of that, and one of the results of that is relationships are ruined. We see that sin tears at the fabric of our relationships both with God and with each other. Uh, Firstly, humanity's relationship with God is torn asunder. For the first time, but not the last, guilt and fear flutters in the human heart. Shame drives them to hide from God. Chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Guilt, fear, shame. The garden had been the special sanctuary where Adam and Eve had enjoyed this close relationship with God. They had unfettered access to Him. In the garden, they had walked and they had talked with God. And yet now, tragically, after their sin, they are banished from the garden and they're banished from God's presence. Paradise is lost. And sin doesn't only ruin their relationship with God. It also ruins their relationship with each other. Uh, Finger-pointing and denial of responsibility is not just the domain of small children. Adam seeks to deflect God's fiery gaze by blaming Eve. Chapter 3, verse 12. The man said, The woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit, and I ate it. 
and the toxin of marital tension is released. Uh, God's authority structure for marriage is now a source of strife and abuse. Chapter 3, verse 16. God says to the woman, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so the consequences of sin are far-reaching. Creation is cursed. Relationships are ruined. And thirdly, death is introduced. Uh, Before their rebellion, humans had the potential for immortality. In the garden, they had access to the tree of life, which would have sustained their lives indefinitely. And yet now they are cut off from the tree of life, that source of sustenance. And consequently, they are now destined to die. Chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. And with chilling words, the Creator who formed them from dust now consigns them to return to dust. Chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So you see, uh, it's only when we hold Genesis chapter 3 alongside Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that we can fully understand the consequences of sin. God's order of the good creation is now disordered. Uh, We live in a world which is now dysfunctional. Things are not as they were supposed to be. And we see that chaos and disorder outworking in many different ways. Uh, The blessings of God's good creation have been tempered now by God's curse. And we can still taste aspects of life's goodness, but the experience is always temporary. We cannot escape the effects of living in a fallen world. And the question which hangs in the Bible, uh, hangs in the air at this point in the Bible is this. What hope is there now for humanity? Uh, Has paradise been lost forever? Has God now turned his back on us? Now the answer to those questions uh, is wonderfully and neatly summarized in the song by the British pop group Coldplay. Uh, Everything is not lost. Everything's not lost. Motivated by his grace, God offers hints of hope. There are hints, the glimpses of grace. Uh, Firstly, uh, God kindly provides for their needs. He is the one who gives them clothes to wear. God still cares for them in spite of their rebellion. But secondly, there is uh, what seems at first cryptic prediction uh, by God. It comes whilst God is pronouncing sentence on the serpent Satan. Uh, God foretells of the ongoing conflict between humanity and Satan that will now continue throughout the ages. He says this in chapter 3, verse 15. 
uh, to the serpent, the Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. But then, unexpectedly, the personal pronouns change from plural to singular. Suddenly, God is no longer talking of Eve's descendants generally, but of a descendant particularly. And the scope of the conflict is narrowed down to one human in mortal combat with Satan. Verse 15 continues, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God is foreseeing a human who brings the conflict with Satan to a close. Satan will strike this human's heel. In other words, this human will be injured by Satan, but not decisively. He will strike his heel. But this human, on the other hand, will crush Satan's head. That is, he will deal the decisive blow that will spell, spell the end of Satan. Uh, theologians call this uh, the proto-evangelium, which means actually the, the, the first proto-evangelium good news, the first declaration of the gospel in the Bible. And it's the unveil, the veiled promise of a, certain, a serpent slayer. Who is this serpent slayer? Well, at this point in the Bible, no more is said. It points us to read on. So, uh, some points of application in closing. A few years ago, uh, the Br British comedian, uh, actor, writer, presenter, and director, uh, Stephen Fry, was asked this question. What would you say to God if you were to meet him after you die? And hear how he's responded. It's actually on YouTube. You can hear it for yourself afterwards, but I'll put it on the screen. This is part of what he said. Bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? This is Stephen Fry speaking to God at the pearly gates. How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a fickle-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? The God who creates this universe if it was created by God, is quite clearly, clearly a maniac, totally selfish. And we have to spend our, our life on our knees thanking him. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living in my view. Well, there we go. How would you respond to Stephen Fry? Well, there are many opposing arguments that could be advanced. Uh, some of them would be quite technical. Uh, the issue of evil and suffering in this world is both complex and emotive. I'm not suggesting for a moment that I can answer it with what I can say here in a few minutes. However, a starting point for understanding the evil and suffering in the world is provided by Genesis chapters 1 to 3. 
And these three chapters provide a framework which we ignore at our peril. And it seems evident that Stephen Fry has chosen to overlook these three chapters of the Bible. You see, chapters 1 to 3 of Genesis help us to understand three things. God as He really is, the nature of human sin, and the consequences of humanity's sin. Firstly, understanding God as He really is. Uh, Stephen Fry's view of God is shaped by the evil and suffering he sees in this world. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 2 takes us to a time when there was no suffering and evil in this world. And it's this passage which starts to show us God as He really is. Uh, Stephen Fry's words again, he says this, Why should I respect a fickle-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? The question is this, is that what God is really like. Genesis informs us that he is not like that. Genesis informs us that this is not the way things were supposed to be. It's not the way that God made them to be. To truly understand God, uh, the Bible starts by directing our gaze to an era when things were as God intended them to be. And therefore, to truly understand God, the Bible starts by directing our gaze to that era. And when we follow the finger of the Bible, far from concluding that God is fickle-minded, stupid, and selfish, actually, we come away with a sense of wonder, and we are moved to a point of worship. We start to see God's incredible power his spine-tingling goodness and his benevolent rule. We see his unimaginable power. All of the vast myriad universes created by God, all of the minute macroscopic organisms also from his hand. And yet by what means does he bring them into being? With a word. It is so effortless. It evokes within us marvel at his boundless power and his greatness. And not only do we see his unimaginable power, we see his staggering goodness. It's reflected in the goodness of the creation. In the beginning, the whole of the creation shimmered with beauty and bounty. It was perfect. It ran like a skillfully engineered German engine. The repeated refrain and God saw that it was good, meant that everything ran with perfection and precision and purpose. The purpose that God intended. And not only do we see God's unimaginable power and His staggering goodness, we see His benevolent rule. God was not a despot. Quite the opposite. God's rule was gentle and it was generous. God provided everything that humanity could possibly need, and he made it beautiful for them to enjoy. He said you can eat from any of the trees in the garden except just from that one tree. And yet, of course, his rule then had to be expressed in judgment. In the face of breach of his statute, God moves to judgment 
and to pronouncing sentence, and that is entirely appropriate. For he is the ruler of the whole earth and the judge of the whole earth. And in so doing, he rightly determines humanity's fate. And yet, and yet, wonderfully and mysteriously, he marries justice with mercy. He gives us, even then, glimpses of grace. He didn't need to issue the proto-evangelium, that first declaration of gospel, of good news, in that darkest of hours, and yet he did. And he was moved by the grace and love in his heart to do so. The God of the Bible is a far cry from Stephen Fry's view of God. Uh, The second thing we see from these chapters is the appreciating the nature of humanity's sin. Not only do we appreciate God as He really is, but we appreciate the nature of humanity's sin. You see, people are often prone to only seeing the tip of sin's iceberg. Uh, Sin is commonly thought of primarily in terms of disobedience. Well, sin is disobedience, but it is so much more than disobedience. Because at the heart of sin is relationship. And the offense of sin is relational. You see, at the heart of sin is a total rejection of God. Now, it was evident in the air that Stephen Fry breathed in that interview. In his words, he said, The moment you banish him, that is God, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living in my view. There it is. There it is. The desire for self-rule, rejecting God and His rightful rule over us. So you see, people often have far too narrow an understanding of sin. As we better grasp the true nature of sin, we also, on the wonderfully positive side, start to perceive the true nature of holiness. You see, on the opposite side, while sin is more than just disobeying God, holiness is far more than just obeying God. Because, of course, if we just try to obey God, that in the end can just boil down to legalism. Holiness is so much more than that. Just as sin is relational, holiness is relational. Holiness starts with accepting God as our God. Holiness involves trusting in God's goodness. That's relational. Holiness means we will be content with what God ordains. It's an expression of contentment in the context of a relationship. And holiness means we have a decommitment to God's rule and the order He created. And finally, understanding the consequences of humanity's sin. Uh, The first three chapters of Genesis tell us that God's good creation has been fundamentally corrupted by sin. Things are not as they were supposed to be. Uh, Genesis also reminds us where the fault lies for things not being as they were supposed to be. And the fault does not lie with God, but with us as a race. Uh, Stephen Fry maintains that the misery in the world is not our fault, he says. And yet Genesis chapter 3 reminds us that such misery is our 
fault, although not in a simplistic what goes around comes around formula. A child with bone cancer is not receiving a specific punishment for sins he or she has committed. As a race, we are all guilty of rejecting God's rule. And as individuals in different ways, the fruit of that rebellious heart is lived out. And as a result, the creation now languishes under God's curse. And in different ways, we all therefore suffer the collateral damage of living under the curse. Things are not as they were supposed to be. But thankfully, God is gracious. Already in the darkness of Genesis chapter 3, we see the glimmer of grace. There is hope that God has not abandoned us as our sins deserve. And so, as we follow the Bible's unfolding story in the months ahead, we are looking, of course, for how God's grace will ultimately act to save us. We are looking for the one who will slay the serpent and crush his head. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 have profound truths which we ignore as our peril. Help us always to have these foundational chapters as the foundation for our view of reality of the world we live in today and ultimately where the world is heading. Uh, may we never forget that you made the creation good, that we as a race have ruined it through our own fault and our own rebellion against you. And yet you are promising a restoration through the serpent slayer who will crush his head. Uh, thrill our hearts more deeply, we pray, as we see the unfolding purposes of your gospel hinted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 in the Proto-Evangelium. Thank you for your grace. May it grow in our hearts and may our appreciation of it grow in our hearts such that our relationship with you is refreshed and deepened, we pray. Amen.